I'm going to encourage you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 7 in your copy of God's Word, Joshua chapter 7. And in just a moment, we're going to read verse 1. It was in 2015, not too long ago, that there was that year the Miss Universe pageant was going on. I remember seeing it on the news after it happened. It was all over social media, and I looked it up again last night or had Paula look it up for me. Something uh, very unusual happened that night that will go down in history. And Steve Harvey was the host that evening. And Steve Harvey, at the end, the pageant has went all the way through, and at the end, he crowns Miss Columbia as Miss Universe. The only problem was, it was not Miss Columbia that won Miss Universe. It was Miss Philippines. And so, after a minute, Steve Harvey had to go back and stop everyone from clapping and say there's been a mistake. I had thought that night, um, first, I'm so warped that I giggled some, and Steve Harvey took it like a champ. He took it on the chin of, of his mistake and uh, everything, and he did host it again the next year, I think. But I've often thought, or not often, but I thought that night, how terrible for that Miss Columbia to one moment have the crown on your head and the flowers in your hand, and then only to be told you weren't the winner. And to have the crown taken off, the title taken away, and handed to another. I thought of that story yesterday morning in dealing with the story that we're about to read. A couple of weeks ago, we actually looked in Joshua chapter 6 of the mighty uh, conquest and defeat of Jericho. And man, God did such an awesome thing there. And the children of Israel led by Joshua were so obedient to do exactly to the letter almost all that God had commanded them. And on that seventh day, they marched seven times around. And on the seventh time, they were blowing the horns and carrying the Ark of the Covenant around with them, and they shouted, and the walls came down, and then they went in and defeated the city. But God had told them in chapter 6, he said, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. See, this was a pagan city that had pagan gods filled with worldliness and materialism and lust. And he told them not to take things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take away any of the devoted things and makes the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon you. And there were things that were to go of the spoil that were to go in the Lord's treasury for his glory, for the building of his house one day in his ministry and work among his people. But it says at the very end of chapter 6, it says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. You see, the people in the land were terrified of the nation of Israel. They were. They were terrified of the Hebrew people. Because they had heard about how they had marched out of Egypt, and how Pharaoh was following, and they had heard the stories, and we know this because Rahab told them, our hearts are melting because of you and your God. 
And when they had heard the story of Moses lifting up his staff and God parting the waters of the Red Sea and the nation of Israel walking across on dry ground and then when Pharaoh and his army came after them it all crashed and defeated they'd heard these stories they knew they were coming and now they had come in and they had seen the mighty city of Jericho and its walls fall and his fame Joshua was spreading throughout all the land and that reminds me of the crown on your head the flowers in your hand the title And then we come to chapter 7, and it's a totally different story. How quickly you can fall from a great rise. How quickly a good day can turn into a bad day, right? And we come to chapter 7, and if you are physically able, I will ask you to stand again for the reading of God's Word. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. May the Lord add to the reading of His Word today. May it not return to Him void, and we rejoice in those truths. And may he bless the reading of his words. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, how true it is that our days can change in a matter of minutes and seconds. What can be a, a calming moment can turn into a very devastating moment, but what can turn into a successful season of life for us can also turn in quickly into a time of destruction when we break faith with You, when we sin against You. We have seen the valleys of trouble, Lord, from our own making and our own doing, and we ask, Lord, that You save us from those valleys of trouble brought on by our sin today. Would You, O Lord, use this message? Would the Holy Spirit take it this morning and place it deep in our spirit, Lord, that we all would be strengthened in our faith, restored in our faith, brought to faith through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And may You use this and this very simple teacher, Lord, to teach profound truths of what it means to break faith with You. May we trust You today. May we hear from You today. And may we also find hope, Your hope here today. In Jesus' name. Amen. This is a story of crime and punishment, and as I said, it comes right on the heels after this mighty win at Jericho. One man, Achan. Achan broke faith. He disobeyed the Lord's command, and he took devoted things of destruction, and he hid them in his tent. You see, to break faith means a willful unfaithfulness to God in His Word. A willful and unfaithfulness decision to God in His Word. The Hebrew word is used in other parts of the Bible always to bring out or to depict unfaithfulness between a spouse 
or of a spouse. So that's the picture that we get here in how this Hebrew word is used in other places of the Bible. They broke faith. They were unfaithful. Unfaithful to the covenant that they had entered into with their God. It goes on in the story, and man, they have this mighty, this mighty win at Jericho. And then they come to Ai, and you see those verses. And so Joshua sends spies out to Ai, and, and now they're very confident. They had just seen the walls of Jericho collapse. They had defeated the mighty city and the people and army of Jericho. And the men went up to Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to them, listen, we don't even need all the people to go up on this one. Just send two or three thousand. There's no need for everyone to go up. They're not a great people. Man, we, did you just see what happened? We just had the walls come down. No need to send a lot of the army. We'll take care of this. And so through about three thousand people went to Ai, and it says uh, there in verse four, and says, and they fled before the men of Ai. About 3,000 men went up and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Cherubim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. One day, you've just brought down Jericho, or you thought you did, but it was God's power. And the next day, with a lot lesser people... You're running for your life and 36 of your men are dead. And what turned into this fantastic conquest and victory at Jericho now at AI, they are, their hearts are broken. And I want you to notice this all goes back as we see to Achan's sin. And I want you to notice that Aachen's sin, even though it was an individual sin that we'll read more about in a moment, it affected everyone. And sin does that. You might think that your sin is a hidden matter, a private matter. It's not hurting anyone. But beloved, I assure you, our sins, even though they may be individual and private, affect many people. There can be a sin of a person in a church or a couple of people that can affect the fellowship of the whole church. I remember Dad telling me the story of a church not around here where two brothers, I think, uh, did not speak to each other for many years. There was unforgiveness and bitterness in their heart. It affected the whole temperature, if you will, of the fellowship. Our sin affects other people. And here, because of Aachen's sin, 36 men died, and the whole nation's heart was broken and scared. It melted, it said. It became, their hearts became as water. And Joshua then thinks that God had not kept his part of the covenant. And in verse 6 he says, Then Joshua tore his clothes. He fell on the earth on the face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? Why would you even bring us this far? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Why'd you bring us here 
to have us humiliated, God. You've broken your covenant. We're a laughing stock, a joke now. It would have been better if we had just stayed on the other side of the Jordan and ate the manna. Then the tune changes when God speaks to Joshua in verse 10, and he said, The Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Let me tell you something, friend. When there is hidden sin in your tent, you will have a hard time defeating your enemies in life. And your heart will melt. And you might blame God, and you might blame me, and you might blame the church, but the truth is there's sin hidden in your tent. And you cannot stand before your enemies when the faith has been broken. When you are willfully living against the commands of God. You see, God had chosen Israel. They didn't choose Him. He had chosen them. He had delivered them from Egypt through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, through crossing the Jordan, in the victory at, at Jericho. He had done all that. He had kept them through the desert wanderings. He had brought forth the covenant with His people. They didn't seek Him. God, we found You. Can we make a covenant with You? But God chose them and made a covenant with them to be His people and for Him to be their God. And to act recklessly in breaking the faith, Accor chose to live independently, and that's really what sin is. You choose, or I choose, to live independently from God. And by breaking the covenant relationship, it brought a curse upon Achan and affecting others in the process. So then in the story, I won't read it all, but you can come back and reflect upon that later when God tells Joshua, you get up, there's sin in the camp. And it needs to be dealt with. You consecrate the people. And then you're going to start bringing the tribes before you. And then the clans. And, and then the homes. And Joshua does that obediently. The Khan is eventually brought before Joshua. And Joshua says to him, My son, give glory to the Lord, a God of Israel, and give praise to Him, and tell me, now what you have done, do not hide it from me. The lot had fallen upon Achan. Achan answered in verse 20, Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak. Huh. A beautiful cloak of the pagan people. A robe. And he said, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them or lusted after them. And I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. He coveted 
He lusted after these items. What leads to sin? What leads to the breaking of faith? Dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction leads to sin. Dissatisfaction of your life, of your marriage, of your church, whatever it might be, of your home, of your clothes, of whatever. It begins with dissatisfaction. It it begins with, you know what, I deserve more. I work hard. I shouldn't have this struggle. Or my husband should support me more. My wife should be more loving. On and on it goes. And Satan is entering into our mind thinking that we should have more. And Calm began to think, you know what? Look at that beautiful robe. Look at that silver. Look at that gold. And he began to be dissatisfied with how God had kept them through the 40 years in the wilderness. And he began to desire to live independently from God's blessing. And you see, dissatisfaction leads to coveting or lust. And it always has to do with materialism or worldliness. Think of this, a robe. He saw a beautiful robe. He wanted the robe. He wanted to look like those people and that they had just defeated. And it also leads to not only materialism, but worldliness for financial gain. And the problem was he really didn't earn that. That was God's. God was taking care of his people, but he became dissatisfied. Satan found an entry point in the, in the mind of a con and Then it led to lust when he saw the robe and the silver and the gold. And when that's unchecked, beloved, when that's unchecked, it leads to sin. And not trusting God for what you have. And that's breaking faith. Happens in the church all the time. It happens among pastors. Happens among staff members, whoever. Happens against... Uh, people in the church, when they begin to love not the church that is with them and around them, but some church thought up in their mind that it should be, or that they want it to be, and they become dissatisfied. On and on it goes in the marriage. And young couples, I want to tell you, the more you threaten divorce, the easier it is to eventually do it. Because you're spewing out your dissatisfaction over and over and over again, threatening it every time. Threatening, and eventually when the next bad thing happens or when the next what it looks like appears to be a good thing comes into your life, it's easier for you to ditch that road. Dissatisfaction of your life. And the more we complain, the more we allow Satan to get in our mind and unchecked, the more we gripe about our life, the more we moan about our life, the more we thirst for something because there's a hole in here that needs to be filled. And if we're dissatisfied with God, then we're looking into the world to fill that. If we start looking at materialism and worldliness and things that the world does, and then it leads to sin if unchecked. And then it leads to a valley of trouble. And that's exactly what happened here. It's amazing here in verses 25 and 26, after Khan confesses to the sin, 
And Joshua says in 25, why did you bring trouble on us? His sin affected the whole nation. His sin caused 36 other men to perish in battle and the hearts of the nation to melt like water. The Lord bring trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And it believed through the wording there that it wasn't just him, but it was his family. And so, not only did Khan's sin affect himself individually, eventually with death, it affected his family. Now, you can take that proverbial. How many times have one individual sin in a family really, not a physical death, but a mental, emotional, and spiritual death brought death to a whole family? And not only that, it spread out to a nation. And the sin had to be dealt with. Or else they wouldn't stand before their enemies. And that was the point. God had given them the land. He had made the covenant with them. This is your land. I'm giving it to you. I'm your God. You're my people. I chose you. I'm giving you this land. But I am your God. And not the gods of this land and this world. Now, beloved, here we come to a crisis point in our faith many times when we read of a story such as this. They burned them and fire and stoned them with stones. And it says, Then the Lord turned from His burning anger. And therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor. The Valley of Trouble. Is what that means in Hebrew. That was the valley of trouble. It started with dissatisfaction. It led to lust or coveting over what was not his. It led to taking it. It led to hiding it because this was willful. Then it led to lying about it. And then you find yourself in a valley of great trouble. And here's the crisis point because people will say, now, that's a very extreme story and I don't believe God is the same God. The God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. And you know what? That is absolutely, totally false. The God of the Old Testament is still the same God of the New Testament. He is always the same. He never changes. He deals and will deal ultimately with sin on the Day of Judgment. But we live under a different covenant. They lived under the Mosaic covenant. Same God. But they lived under the Mosaic covenant. And that sin had to be dealt with in that way. God does not excuse sin. And even though we live under the new covenant, the new covenant is based upon the blood and body of Jesus Christ. My sin was not overlooked. When I say I'm forgiven, it didn't mean at all. That doesn't mean at all that God overlooked my sin like an old grandpa that pats his grandson on the head and, you know, he broke the window. But, you know, grandparents don't treat their grandkids like they did their kids. Is that true? 
Dad said, boy, if I knew having grandkids were so much fun, I'd have had them first. I said, thanks, Dad. And you remember, it's, it's not like that, that situation where you just blow over the mistake. My sin has been dealt with at Calvary. God doesn't overlook my sin or yours. The point is, under the new covenant of Jesus Christ, God poured out His wrath on His only begotten Son as His Son became our sin. See, Jesus walked through the valley of trouble that we might be forgiven. That ought to make some of you Baptists say amen right then. You're looking at me like a mule staring at a new gate, but I'm going to tell you that's a good place to say amen. Jesus walked the valley of trouble. Jesus took our stoning. Jesus took our burning so that we could be freed. It's the same God. He poured out His wrath upon His only Son that I might find salvation and forgiveness. Is there still consequences to my sin? Does it mean the Mosaic Law means nothing to me or the commandments? Absolutely. Uh, So they do mean something to me because the prophet said that when the Holy Spirit come, when we receive Jesus Christ, He puts these laws in our hearts. They're not on tablets of stone, but they're in our hearts. And still, even though I'm forgiven and saved, these sins still have consequences. When I sin against the Lord, it can hurt me individually. It hurts my family. It hurts church. It hurts the nation around me. The point of today's message is we all must deal with temptation and sin. We know that. We all must deal with temptation and sin. We're all tempted to be dissatisfied and then when we're dissatisfied long enough we're tempted to begin to lust or covet after things that don't belong to us after worldliness and materialism and then it will cause us to take them and then it will cause us to hide them and then it will cause us uh, to lie about them and then we find ourselves in the valley of trouble but the point is we must deal with these things properly And we're not going to take anyone out today or your family out and stone you and burn you. But that doesn't make sin any less serious of an issue or an offense to God. Nor does it mean that He has not or is not to judge sin. And again, He judged sin greatly for the world's salvation when He put His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. But there is coming a day, my friend... There is coming a day, a day of judgment. And that will be based upon who received, who entered into the new covenant of Jesus Christ, who took our wrath, who took our stoning, who took our burning, who took our valley of trouble, or those who rejected and wanted to live independently from God. And by the way, there's still a lot of religion over here, but this is relationship with God no, we're not going to stone you today, or if, if we did you, you'd have to throw them back at me. All I can do is point you to the cross and to the Christ that went to that cross for you and for me, taking our sin of trouble for us. 
And still our sins hold consequences now and in the future. And our hidden sins are not to be trifled with or to made light of, but they need to be dealt with today. And I'm encouraging you to deal with those sins today that might be hidden in your heart. Maybe a sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior today. Maybe Christian, you know you're saved and secure, but you've been allowing too much temptation to cause you to be dissatisfied with your life. And then you begin to covet other things that aren't yours. And maybe you're right on the brink of wanting to grab it. You might think this is my hidden sin. Nobody knows about that. But I want you to see this quote from Lewis Schaefer. It may be a secret sin on earth. You might have a sin I don't see. The church might not see. Your family might not see. But that doesn't mean it's hidden and it's secret. It's an open scandal in heaven. It may be a secret sin on earth, but it is an open scandal in heaven. And God's going to deal with that one day. And either one day when you stand before Him, you're going to be covered with the blood of Jesus Christ, or you're going to be standing there naked before a holy and righteous God that has to deal with sin because He is holy and because He is just and because He is loving. We wouldn't respect God if He didn't deal with wrong. And so today I'm encouraging you maybe first to receive Christ as your Savior and put your trust in what He did at Calvary's cross to save you from judgment. In just a moment we're going to have a hymn of invitation and we're going to give you that time to come to the altar and say, I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I realize Jesus took my valley of trouble and I ask Jesus into my heart and to forgive me of my sins. Secondly, Christians, I challenge you as I have to and must continue to do is to deal with your temptations and sins and repent of them and confess them and getting them out of the tent this morning, admitting them to God. You don't have to admit them here in front of everybody, uh, but you need to get them out and confess them before God and agree with Him that you're being tempted or that you have sinned and you've hidden things in your tent. And I want you to know this, if you confess your sins, He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Isn't that beautiful? 1 John 1.9, if you want to look that up later. And even though you might be saved and secured, our sin still has consequences and it needs to be dealt with now before it not only robs you of your life and your joy, but also those around you and your family, but also the church. That sin needs to be dealt with today at the altar. Or where you stand, confess, repent, turn to Jesus Christ again today. And if there's nothing else that you might learn from this message, as we said, learn this, there's no hidden secret sins. You might fool me and I might fool you and we might fool each other, but no one fools God. And He knows about the sin hidden in our tent. And so would you confess? Would you repent? Would you turn to the Lord for forgiveness? And you know what? What a mighty hope we have that if we come to Him, we do find grace in our time of need. 
those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then shall I be saved from my enemies. Our hymn of invitation today is 544, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Would you let Him have His way in your life today? Let us stand together and sing, and the altar is open. Would you come? Let Him have His way in your life. Would you clean out the tent? Would you remove the things that are going to lead you to a valley of trouble, my friend? Would you take your sin seriously? Would you repent of your dissatisfaction? Deal with it now before it leads you into a terrible valley of destruction.